The race to 5G is on, and the battle for talent is getting fierce. Welcome to 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, a podcast dedicated to helping you face the future workforce head on. Navigate this challenging talent landscape with innovative strategies to attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. Only here on 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, CEO of Broadstaff Talent Solutions. Hi, and thanks so much for joining me today on 5G Talent Talk. I'm Carrie Charles, and I'm your host. And I am really, really excited to have with me someone that I've known for a long time, Jennifer Fritchie. And she is my guest today, and we are going to have a really wonderful conversation. Jennifer is the head of North American Telecom and Communications Infrastructure at Greenhill. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Carrie. I'm flattered to be asked. Good, good. So let's start, Jennifer. You have a long history in telecom, and I'd like for you to tell us about your journey a little bit. And also, I believe you have two board roles as well. That's right. Yes, thank you. Yes, I got into telecom, and I call it a non-traditional way. I joined right out of business school in 1995, showing my age, where I went to work for a company called Everin Securities. And Everin was a small brokerage firm based in Chicago, actually, which you can probably tell from my accent I'm from. (laughs) So I went to work there and ended up working as an associate analyst for the telecom analysts. I was the junior on that team, and I was really looked back at that and kind of won the lottery ticket of coverage. Those two gentlemen, which was wireless and wireline analysts, because in those days, they weren't as blurred as they are now. I supported both of them. They both went on to bigger jobs. And I remember going to my boss at the time and saying, can I do this? You don't have to give me a raise or an office even, but I can do this. And they said, you have an office and you don't have a raise, just prove yourself. And so with that journey, I survived many mergers. I think the exact stat is I was worked there for 25 years and there were five different company names and the same phone number throughout. So Wells Fargo eventually bought many companies that existed before that that started with Everin, where I started out of business school. Wow. What commitment. So 25 years. 25 years. (laughs) Yes. Fast forward. So during those 25 years, I followed, and that's where I got to know you and a lot of the people Mm -hmm. companies. I followed the telecom services cable for uh, about three years before I left, and then com infrastructure, so data centers and towers. I followed the towers when they went public. So I remember when American Tower was like a dollar thirty-five stock, which is amazing. And I left Wells Fargo just a year ago, July last year. And really the reason for that was a few things. I was more worried about the sell side. Um, you know, a lot of our investors were feeling the pinch as money was moving more to passive asset management. But really more importantly, I felt like I'd been there for 25 years and I had an otherwise boring resume. So it was time to move. I was given the opportunity to be a minority partner in a fund that was raised for the C-band spectrum option, which was a wild and crazy ride. And what is all about? We, our name was Canopy Spectrum. We were backed by Pepper Tree, Shamrock, and Cloverlay, as well as some smaller investors. And we ended up to be the sixth largest bidder in the C-band auction. Now that sounds impressive, but we really spent crumbs on the ground compared to what Verizon, the $45 billion Verizon. (laughs) It was a terrific experience. I learned from one of the best. 
And I knew that that was temporary and that I wanted to get back in the real workforce. But as you mentioned, during that hiatus, I also was asked to be join two boards. I'm on the DICOM board and the wireless telecom group, which both have really been amazing experiences, very smart boards, excellent management teams, and again, keeps me in the space. And then Greenhill found me via LinkedIn. I actually didn't know anyone at Greenhill, but had heard about the reputation. And for those who don't know, Greenhill, it's a non-balance sheet, pure M&A advisory firm. And they wanted someone, they've done a lot of work in Europe in the communications infrastructure space and wanted someone to be kind of boots on the ground here in the States. So I joined there in April and it's been you know, a lot of fun so far. Oh, what an exciting opportunity. I remember I probably saw you, I feel like on every panel, and you know, when we used to have actual events, right, at conferences, you were always on the panels. And I, I, when I first got in the industry, I just, all I could think about was, man, she is so brilliant. Like everything that you just, you were just so smart. So I'm excited to have you on the show and getting to know you a little bit. I'm also, what's cool is your blog. And I don't know how long you've had that, but I want you to talk about it just a bit because Every time that I see you have a new one, I read it and it's informative and it, I love your writing style. And I tell us a little bit more about your blog. What is it? Sure. Called? So it's called Fritchy Forums, which was the name of my newsletter at Wells Fargo before I left. And if I miss one thing really about my old job, it's certainly my team, but also the writing. You know, I went through a liberal arts um, education and really love writing. And so Greenhill has allowed me to keep this blog, which started shortly after I left Wells. I paired up with Digital Infrastructure Investor run by Tim Downs and Ian Gillett, who's been a great portal for those of you who don't know it. And they've allowed me two things. They've allowed me the ability to write this weekly, becoming kind of a bi-weekly blog on different themes in the industry, as well as do some interviews. Some of, I would love to interview you, like short little interviews, kind of talking about digital infrastructure themes. Yeah. So in one of your blogs, you know, actually, we'll talk about a few of them today, but let's start with what's your perspective on the state of communications infrastructure today? So it's very exciting right now. I mean, there's just when I followed, as I mentioned, my background, I followed, you know, wireless data centers, towers. At that time, they were all very separate and distinct silos. And what you see now is a significant blurring of the lines in so many different ways. If you had to kind of whiteboard the communications infrastructure space, I would whiteboard four main kind of squares. You have certainly the towers, the macro towers, small cell fiber, which I would argue is the connective tissue. And I would say maybe those are the three main squares. And then there is somewhat of a dotted line, which I think will become more of a straight linear line to data centers as they become a larger part of the conversation. And you really, I mean, the, the classic example of that whiteboard, someone running with it is Mark Yancey and what he's doing mm-hmm. now at Digital Colony. They're, they're rebranding, I know. And what to what, their hands in many honeypots and connecting these dots. I think it's going to be a really exciting few years. Yes, yes. And Mark Gansey was one of my guests on 5G Talent Talk. So everyone take a look at that episode. It's awesome. You know, there's many players in the 5G game. And I was reading one of your blogs about this big announcement uh, that AT&T made Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. And so what are your thoughts on AT&T's strategy? 
Sure. So I would know that when in person who knew me as an analyst, they would agree with this statement. I'm somewhat of a contrarian. Like I remember the days when everyone hated Sprint. I would also add, including the team at T-Mobile and would talk about how unvaluable that spectrum is. And I always saw hidden asset value there. And I think what we've seen, I know there was kind of a mob mentality to hate AT&T and Monday morning quarterback about the bad decisions they've made, the Time Warner and whatnot. And that to me is all very rear view mirror. I think that, you know, love them or hate them, the AT&T management team has made realize that they were going down a hard path. And when you're going down a hard path, in many ways, it's best to rip off the Band-Aid very early. And I think that despite how hard a path it was to get Time Warner, I think they realized that the competition was going to be too tough. But more importantly, I think they realized that they were moving away from their core asset which is significant. And those core assets are certainly the network side, both the wireless, wireline, and, you know, bring in enterprise to kind of group both of those. And I think that the company, rightly so, and even with a, as they call it, right size dividend, they now are more unshackled in a way to invest where they need to invest. I think the, you know, the really kind of consideration maybe John Stanky and his team saw is when they were so aggressively going towards fiber in 2015, it may have been a why did we ever stop kind of moment. And I think that once you realize that, that's actually a good place to be despite, you know, all the water cooler chit chat around it. So let's talk about the cable providers. What's your perspective on the players, uh, Comcast and Charter? What's happening there? What do we see for the future? So the, I think cable is, has had it very easy for a very long time. And I don't mean that to say they haven't been front-footed in their own investment. But the telecom pop operators really, for the most part, have kind of sat in a fetal position and not spent. And we just talked through how that's changing with AT&T. It's changing with Frontier. It's changing with Windstream. I think cable has to sit up and take notice. And my very strong guess is they are. You know, when we when I was an analyst, it would always start out from meeting like, let's assume cable is the smartest in the room. And I think that is probably very smart to think that. But they can't be idle here. And, you know, while DOCSIS 3.0 has been phenomenal for them, if you look at the upstream traffic, especially in the last 15 months, as we're all doing what we're doing right now and my children were doing for 15 months, you, the upstream traffic ha- cannot be ignored. And that is where fiber, the asymmetrical nature, excuse me, the symmetrical nature of the fiber always will win versus the asymmetrical nature of the cable infrastructure. How cable is thinking about that is going to be key. And I very much bet they're thinking about it. Hmm. So you talked a little bit earlier about the lines blurring Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the communication infrastructure silos and where we're, where we are now and where we're going. So is this blurring also touching the tech players to Amazon, Google, Microsoft? I mean, how will telecom and tech intersect and what's the future of communications infrastructure going to look like there? Yes. And I think I wrote in one of my blogs when I came back to work at Greenhill, one of my favorite CEOs I caught up with, and he, his first comment to me was, how do you feel now that you've come back in Microsoft as a telecom company? And it was, it was <laughs> kind of in jest, but it was a very real statement because you look right. in those nine months that I was you know, busy buying Spectrum, what has happened? You've had 
I think Microsoft very much being clear with their intention that private networks, 5G is going to matter. I mean, you look at the two acquisitions they did with both MetaSwitch and Affirm Networks. Those are communication plays. So they have very much put their you know flag in the ground. Google in a different way. You know, Google Fiber has had kind of start stops and starts. It seems to be starting again. So how these players? There is definitely a morphing of the lines between them. I mean, I do remember, I'm going to go back to 2015, having a meeting with then COO of AT&T, John Stanky, and I asked him, who do you think of yours, your competition? And he said, and his exact quote was, it's not just Verizon, it's not just Comcast anymore. Bringing into the conversation, it's Amazon, it's Microsoft. At the time, it was also Netflix. But, you know, you really are seeing those change and how private networks, especially from Microsoft and their 5G strategy, I think will be very much worth watching. Because if you look at their wireless, excuse me, if you look at Microsoft's board of directors, you'll see some very important wireless names there. Oh, interesting. I haven't thought about that. You know, talking about telecom leaders, and you speak with a lot of them in your work, and you have over the last 25 years or more. What did leaders need to know now as they look to the future? You know, any particular trends to watch, any challenges that lie ahead? I mean, I think that it has been challenging. And I think that if you're a telecom CEO, especially a services CEO, the question you have to ask yourself is what new businesses don't cannibalize my current businesses? And that has always been a challenge. Like you look at names like AT&T, Lumen, you know, things like SD-WAN, that's is a challenge to their MPLS business. So, how, and you know, you could argue that some of their legacy businesses are higher margin than these faster growing, lower margin businesses. So, how do you balance that? I think is a real question. I think the answer is you think of businesses outside the core that are not cannibalizing yourself. Edge is a perfect example of that. My most recent blog was written about what Lumen and T-Mobile are doing. I think the edge play, again, going back to that whiteboard, is becoming much more than a whiteboard concept. You know, you have real, real edge stories emerging right now. It was before my time, but Greenhill was an important advisor to one of the parties in the Atlas Edge, which was the combination between Digital Colony and Liberty Media, Liberty Global in Europe. I would very much see types of those type of transactions begin to translate here in the U.S. I think that's got to be top of mind for the investors or for the company leaders. Right, right. I see that. So let's talk about the state of of M&A in the infrastructure space. What movement are you noticing? What are investors looking for? What's on the minds of companies and leaders in the M&A space? Sure. So even since I joined Greenhill about eight months or eight weeks ago, it feels like eight months because the amount of M&A that I've seen just even sitting in the seat, it's been enormous. And I don't think it's slowing down. I mean, there's many factors driving that. You have to start with low interest rates. You know, for some of the smaller businesses, looming tech capital gains, taxes, changes is an important vehicle. But I, I think more importantly, it's moving ahead of where the customers are going. You know, we're talking this week where Monday, you know, the data center world was rocked with the announcement between QTS and Blackstone. I think these are very, very interesting stories that are going to continue to evolve. The data center space is really interesting to me because you have these two extremely large players in Equinix and Digital, and the number three player is Cyrus One, which is about the third the size 
of digital, number two. So that that is an industry ripe for consolidation. Think of like old regional banks or even old regional drugstores, and now they're all Walgreens and CVSs. I can see that happening in that space. I think you can't you have to start also any discussion on M&A with fiber, because again, that is, it's an overused term, but it's the right one. This is the connective tissue that leads connects all these themes that we're talking about. Some of the speakers I've heard on your past podcasts, I think are going to be really interesting in the M&A fiber front this year. And they're kind of the prettiest girls at the dance. A lot of people yeah. want to, you know, take them on the dance. Right. <laughs> all these themes. And then I think towers, you know, the tower sector has very much consolidated, but there's still certain build to suit operators, but I think still will play a role here. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about diversity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I've talked about this you know, many times, but it's still a factor that there are very few women in the telecom space, very few women in the tech space. And, and that is a concern mm-hmm. for business leaders and hiring managers. And in staffing, you know, we get asked all the time, you know, we need more women, we need more diversity, we need more female leaders. So yourself being a female leader in telecom, and you have been for many, many years, I want to talk to you about what you see as the biggest challenge in recruiting women into telecom Mm -hmm. and and what you see exists there. So let's say you're speaking to these hiring managers and these leaders, and, you know, what are some solutions that, you know, that they can take away from this? I mean, it's hard and I don't know if it's unique to telecom, but it feels like very raw for telecom right now. But I think you're seeing, I don't know, sea change might be too strong a word, but I think you have to look at like the board level and you're really seeing, I think, some important improvements. Like I did look it up um, before our call, but you look at Verizon, one third of their board is female. AT&T, 25%. Ironically, T-Mobile is the last of the three at about 12%. But I think that's changing because if you really look at the layer under the C-suite, especially at T-Mobile, there is a very female bend toward it. And I would say that with AT&T and Verizon as well. So I think you're starting to see change, but it is hard. And, you know, if you, I was on the diversity and inclusion firm, maybe at my old firm at Wells Fargo, and the data is very specific that when women become kind of at that child rearing age that you see a significant drop off there and I think the the challenge especially in the wake of COVID is how companies you know are going to be able to work to kind of I don't know shepherd them through that period I was lucky enough to be shepherded you know through that I have uh at one point, I had three under three twins in there, but I worked oh for a God. gentleman and it was a man who just gave me what I needed. And it was because of that, I had felt tremendous loyalty toward him and really to the firm I worked for and stayed there for as long as I did. I think companies have to begin thinking, especially in that critical stage for a female, how to kind of, again, shepherd them through that. And I do think you see certainly an awareness of it more than I ever saw And I felt like my situation 17 years ago was unique. Now I don't feel that as much. And I can see that even at the firm I work for now, there's very much awareness. So it's interesting you say that it really builds that loyalty when an employer will shepherd a woman through that time period, because, you know, yes, women will have to take the breaks, the needed breaks in order to take care of the family. In fact, that that really benefits, you know, the entire family. There's many, there's lots of research that have been shown that, you know, families need that time when a, a baby's born. But 
the benefit to the employer is that loyalty that that produces for, you know, for years and years to come. You know, what other benefits do you see for employers who really commit to women? And, you know, the flex, let's say the women that do not all of them need the flexibility, but some do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the employers that that do provide that flexibility, what's for some other benefits do you see to companies there? Yeah, definitely retention is, I would say, number one. But the ability, I mean, I think that the ability to, I don't know, like be able to multitask in a way that's effective toward work. You know, like once I, I mean, again, my kids are now all teens, but when they were little, like I'd get them down, I'd get through bath time and then I'd get back on my computer. Well, you know, and that, but I, I think it was because they gave me the flexibility to just get it done. And, you know, what is the saying? Like, if you need something done, ask the busy. (laughs) Right, right. I thought that. And, you know, and again, it brings in, it probably leads into the question of mentors. I mean, I didn't have many female mentors. The layer above me at my fire firm was a woman and she was wonderful to me. But really most of my mentors in banking, it it just, you know, were were men and they were, you know, they, they understood what I needed. And I think that was actually helpful, extremely helpful in that process. And, you know, the follow through from me and I'm sure other busy females was always there. So I didn't allow myself to create a bear trap where they could begin to question the flexibility they were giving. Mm, That's a very good point. You know, and it's also important that when women are recruited into an organization, they look and they say, how many women are in leadership roles? Mm -hmm. And do I have a shot here? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so in, in your opinion, what can leaders do, companies do to really help promote women to more leadership roles? So I think that there's a few things, certainly the flexibility if they, if they desire it. Secondly, creating, you know, layers of support for the women, even if it's like, even what I was on diversity inclusion committee. I mean, that sounds so goofy because sometimes those committees don't do anything, but what we did was like a networking, networking, like cocktail hour every three weeks. And it was just, we'd bring in a female speaker, things like that. That just, I mean, I think culture now, especially more than ever, it's again, more than just a talking point and how companies really begin to foster that, I think is critical and learning from someone who's kind of been through the, the war room before, I think is key. And once they have a tangible example of that, I think that is very helpful in that process. Yes. And you know, many women we're hearing, uh, that's okay. <laughs> um, we're good. The many women, what we hear is not a growth and development. Okay. Is the reason why they leave companies and also something that they desire with new positions. But something else that we are hearing even more and more and more is that women are saying, I don't have a voice here. Yeah. I don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. I don't matter. Or I'm hearing this even more. And it's unfortunate that, you know, my ideas and my work, someone else is taking, you know, taking credit for it. And so that still exists. And and so what are your thoughts on that and how leaders can really transform that in their industry? Because they may not know what's going on from the top. Yeah. And that's uh, frustrating to hear that, to be perfectly honest, because you would think that we've gotten beyond that. I mean, I think everything is like shine the light on communication. And it doesn't, I guess this is where females have to, I don't know, approach it differently because it's the whole Cheryl Sandberg, you know, type of discussion. But 
you know, I always feel like just shine the light on it, maybe go to that person is who is taking credit and versus like hiding behind an email, just say, hey, can we, you know, talk about this? Because this is how I see this. Let me know if I'm looking at it wrong. I think that, you know, I think that is the way to communications to everything versus going right over the top to the boss, which, I, you know, in any situation, I always don't think is the right first step. Yes, um, I agree. But secondly, I think also finding grabbing someone, even that you maybe isn't in your immediate group, you know, having your personal board of directors and running it by them and, you know, always be open to feedback. I think that is huge. Like if this is the way I'm seeing it, what am I missing? Do I have blinders on in this way? I think is critical. And I remember even making the leave from one job to the next. Someone gave me that advice about the personal board of directors. And I could tell you my six I have. And, you know, they all gave me different advice. And then you kind of put it on a plate and take it. I think that's critical to anything. But it's unfortunate to hear that. Yeah. And it's still happening, unfortunately. Yeah. But I love that personal board of directors. I'm definitely going to uh, going to implement that in my own world I <laughs> and give that advice to all the women that I talk to. That's uh, right. Let's take it a step further with advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice would you give to women who really want to advance their careers, you know, in telecom and or anywhere, whoever's listening, right? And they want to move into those leadership and executive leadership roles. Yeah. Reach out talk, be a sponge. And sometimes like if you might invite someone to LinkedIn, don't just, I guess, don't just say, can we connect? I always add a personal note to say why I want to connect. And you have to remember that people for the most part, like to talk about themselves. So if you like let someone just learn from their journey, learn from their experience, they enjoy that. And if they're not emailing back right away, try again in, you know, in a, a non-irritant sort of way. I think people, I mean, I know I'm probably, you're probably like that. I'm like that. I miss emails. I miss LinkedIn connections. But when people follow up again, I, I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh, my bad. Yes, I absolutely <laughs> I think conferences, grabbing coffee with people, doing even a virtual coffee, a virtual water on Zoom in the days we're in. I think that just is it's so much about building relationships. I mean, if I could say one thing about my career, it's that, you know, I was never the spreadsheet junkie or the best at LBO analysis, but I really fostered relationships because I think that's so, so critical to everything. And, you know, I, again, I would reach out in a way that is appropriate, but put your personal touch on it because that's what people people want to see relationships. And that's, uh, that's my mantra as well. So I agree with you 100%. So Jennifer, this has been I could talk to you for hours and hours. (laughs) But let's tell the audience where can they go to find your blog and also learn more about Green Hill? Sure. Great. Thanks, Carrie. So the blog is digital infrastructure investor and it's.com. And if you click on that, there should be like a little picture of me and it says Fritchie Forum. But beyond me, there's just a lot of great content on that. So I would definitely recommend that. They're trying to do an event in the fall. So that I would port worth watching. And then Green Hill is just Green Hill and Company is a Google search. I think it's greenhill.com. And it's been a lot of fun. And I want people to know, you know, any way I can help them, advise them, think about things in different ways. What Greenhill does really effectively is not only give financial advice with traditional bankers, which I am not, but brings in the layer of industry experience, which hopefully on paper I have. So the 25 years I've been doing this. So So in fact, before we end, tell me more about your ideal client at Greenhill. Like who would you serve the best? 
Sure. I mean, it would, it, it really runs the gamut. Certainly any company in the space that might want to buy or sell an asset or just get advice on a strategy. We all know there's a lot of infrastructure money out there. I knew there was a lot. I didn't realize how much till I got under the tent eight weeks ago. And we have very, very deep tentacles into a lot of this infrastructure money, much of which is in Europe and certainly here in the U.S. So, you know, connecting those dots is where I think we could be very helpful. Wonderful. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. And I look forward to reading all your future blogs. Thank you so much, Carrie. Again, I'm a big fan. So thanks for including me in this great group. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk, brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until next time.